the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we're going to talk with Abdul El Sayed, the former health commissioner here in the city of Detroit, who was named this week to be the Wayne County Health Director. We'll talk about the transition from city to county, what health outcomes most concern Syed, and what he hopes to do in the new role. He'll also take your questions. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. The name Dr. Abdul El Sayed is pretty familiar around these parts. He was the health commissioner here in the, st- in the city of Detroit, and in 2018, he ran as a progressive in the governor's race against current governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Well, now he's back as a public service, as in a kind of similar role to what he did in the city of Detroit. Uh, he is now a project consultant for Wayne County's Health, Human Services, and Veterans Department, and plans to take over as the department's director in March. In that role, he'll have an awful lot of responsibility. He'll be focusing the county's health agency on the most pressing health concerns that face local residents. Think about big things like the pandemic or transmissible diseases, but also things like air pollution and overseeing jail medical services. It is really significant, especially considering Wayne County is not only the most populated county we have in the state of Michigan, but also a place where we have real communities of distress. Uh, We think all the time about the distress that we experience here in the city of Detroit. We don't think as often about how that affects and how that has spread in many ways to places outside of Detroit that are still in Wayne County. So what are the biggest health challenges facing the county? Where's the biggest need? And what does El Syed hope to accomplish while he is the Wayne County Health Director. That is where we begin the conversation today, and I'm really pleased to welcome Abdul Al-Sayed back to Detroit Today. Hey, it's great to have you back with us. Stephen, it's always a privilege to get to sit down with you. Yes, it's and it's been a long time since uh, you've been on the show, but it's also been a long time since uh, almost anyone has been here in the studio because of the pandemic. So we're sitting across from each other, which I haven't done a whole lot uh, in the last couple of years. So consider yourself privileged. Well, how novel and, and also a testament to the work uh, of public health. Yeah, right. We're that all of us do it. here. Yeah, yeah. So let's start here. Uh, you and I have known each other uh, quite some time. I remember when you left the city of Detroit to do some other things and and think about some other things. What is it that has you going back to public service and government? And what is it about this particular role, uh, health director in Wayne County, that is uh, so appealing to you? Yeah, Stephen, I got I got into government to to serve, and um, I believe deeply in that responsibility. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, about public health and, and the work of public health. For me, it's personal. Uh, my, my parents immigrated to this country from Egypt, um, and I used to go back over the summers when I was a kid, uh, and I'd spend um, those summers with my grandmother, wisest, most intelligent person I've ever met, never got to go to school. And she lost two of the infants to whom she gave birth among eight mm. before the age of one. And um, the disparity in my life opportunities growing up just north of Eight Mile uh, and those of my grandmother became clear to me as I traveled those 15 hours. The crazy thing, though, is I could go 15 minutes uh, into the city and travel the same disparity uh, in life expectancy. And that work has, has animated um, my engagement with government, uh, my career. And uh, the opportunity to, to come back to public service is about um, fulfilling that responsibility, thinking about what my grandmother would tell me to do with the opportunities I have ahead, um, the training I've been fortunate enough uh, to get and the experiences I've had 
both in Detroit and um, crisscrossing the state, uh, talking to folks about the challenges that they face. And one of the things you start to appreciate um, is just how serious those disparities are as you travel out of Wayne County and then back into Wayne County and mm. the kinds of challenges people talk about. Um, and I was just so taken by County Executive Evans's vision and um, what he wants to do with this third term, the investment that he wants to make in the well-being of Wayne County and the ways that we can do that both structurally in terms of the way that we think about public health, uh, instantiating the lessons of the pandemic, but then also through a series of programs, investments uh, that have been able to both um, through uh, the the county stewardship of its resources over the past eight years, but then also through uh, the investment in uh, municipal government in the form of the American Rescue Plan. So I just think we have a u really unique opportunity to start um, taking on and, and and making a serious dent in the kinds of inequities um, that uh, unfortunately have marred our state for too long. Yeah. So so as I said in the open. Wayne County, of course, is a different jurisdiction than the city of Detroit. And, and in lots of people's minds, sometimes I think they kind of overlap. People think uh, Wayne County is Detroit. Uh, but there are lots of other communities that are part of Wayne County. And lots of them have problems that, uh, even if they aren't quite as acute as what we have or quite as widespread as what we have in Detroit, they're similar. Um, uh, talk about the areas that you see of need and distress in Wayne County that maybe people don't always think about. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I think if you if you you think about the area, Detroit, Wayne County tend to go together. I mean, it's the name of the airport, right? Um, <laughs> right. But uh, you have to remember, Wayne County includes 42 other communities, um, several of which, as you talked about, um, are really facing levels of destitution, levels of poverty, um, and the intendant ill health that follows that. Um, that we need to be paying attention to. You think about a community like Highland Park or parts of Hamtramck, parts of Dearborn. Um, you think about parts of Downriver where um, you know the economy has fundamentally left a lot of these communities behind and the consequences we've seen uh, in um, everything from uh, uh, opioid addiction to, 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 to suicidality uh, to chronic disease. Um, you think about uh, communities like Inkster uh, and the kind of inequity uh, that follows just um, down the road in a community like Dearborn Heights uh, or um, going up into the county in places like Northville uh, or Canton or Plymouth. And the goal for us is to invest in all of the resources that communities um, that experience great health and great opportunity continue to have, but to do that in a way uh, that makes sure that we're offering those kinds of resources and those kinds of opportunities uh, to children and their families um, in all of these other communities I just talked about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so health director in Wayne County, let's talk about uh, what that role means and what you'll be tasked with doing. Yeah, what I, what I really appreciate about the role is the department is a little bit different than the one um, that I had the privilege of, of helping rebuild in Detroit. Uh, Detroit's is a health department. Uh, in Wayne, we have a health, human, and veteran services department. Mm -hmm. And um, in public health, there's this moniker that I think a lot of people have heard um, since the pandemic when public health sort of was in the limelight, for better or worse, is the social determinants of health. And uh, when you think about what health is, it's, it's not just what happens underneath your skin. It's all of the things that you experience in your life that shape the physiology uh, that that then either directs you toward illness or, or toward health. And so um, it's going to be uh, instantiating a lot of the lessons um, from the pandemic to build a more robust, more resilient, uh, more pandemic-proof um, health department, uh, if you will. Um, the basic things like communicable disease uh, tracing uh, to STI care, uh, to uh, making sure that we are invested um, in, in maternal and in, in family health. But then um, the other opportunities are to think bigger picture, to, to put together a strategic plan uh, for health in Wayne County, which we have not had, um, to think about the way that we uh, engage with air quality and water quality, uh, to think a bit about um, access to housing, uh, to think about returning citizens and their access to the institutions that so often um, they are kept from, to think about um, undocumented folks uh, in our county uh, and the opportunities they may or may not have because of the institutions that are either locked or unlocked for them. And so what I really appreciate about this opportunity is it allows us to think about health plus. It allows us to think about, of course, those things that we have to do to keep people healthy, but also those things that we have to, uh, to do to keep people thriving 
uh, and invested in um, in our communities uh, in our spaces and so um, I think that human services element has the opportunity to really synergize with the health element uh, to, to allow us to, to really think comprehensively about the lives that people lead and um, you know I, I know the county executive has had a real vision uh, for what we can do through a life course for folks and then lastly we talked a bit about inequity it's framed uh, our entire conversation here. And what we really need to be thinking about is what are those resources that folks living in communities like Highland Park or Inkster do not have that other folks in our county or across our state may have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how can we leverage our department to supplement access to those things? One of the projects that I was really excited about in, in Detroit was uh, kicking off a program to just make sure that kids had a pair of glasses. Um, Stephen, you wear glasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can think about what it means to sit in an overcrowded classroom in the back of the room and not being able to see the blackboard. And we talk a lot about, about education funding in this state, as we should and as we should continue to. But if you can't see what's happening on the blackboard, then it doesn't matter what's happening on the blackboard. And so just an intervention like a pair of glasses, the kind that you'd actually want to wear because they look good on your face, um, that matters a lot. And I think we have an opportunity to build those kinds of programs that truly supplement uh, and offer an intervention that changes the life course for somebody. And that's what we're hoping to do uh, at our department. Yeah. So you you mentioned that uh, it's it's kind of a different role. It's a it's a broader role in in some ways than uh, than in the city. What's the overlap, though, between the efforts that get made in the city by the health department and the efforts in the county? As, as we've been talking about, there are 42 other communities that are not Detroit that are part of Wayne County, but Detroit is geographically a huge part of it and, and still a third of the population. Uh, is there good coordination between the two and uh, how, how might that be better? Well, Detroit is unique. It's the only city health department in the state. Um, most other health depa- all other health departments are either county. county health departments or district health departments. Take a lot of the less populous counties uh, up north, for example, and they'll have a district health department. Um, we, uh, we share um, uh, the same focus, and I know that during the pandemic there's been a lot tighter coordination between the county and city health department, and the relationship is good. Obviously, uh, considering my past role, I've got a strong relationship with the city, and I'm looking forward to continuing to grow that. So when it comes to public health, we are a different jurisdiction. The health part of our department is focused on the 42 out Wayne County communities, but the human services part of our department really does focus on the full 1.8 million residents of Wayne County, be they in Detroit or out Wayne County. And so there is a real coordination. There's also a very large nonprofit infrastructure that do a lot of things um, around human services, and those relationships can always be strengthened. And I, I want to say um, that the outgoing director of the Wayne County Health Department, uh, Director Melita Jordan, has done an amazing job um, taking the helm through the pandemic and has stewarded us through one of the hardest moments in public health. My hope is just to continue to build on that platform to instantiate the lessons of the pandemic into the department, but also to think a bit comprehensively about how we capture those synergies, those opportunities to think about how do we wrap ourselves around folks that may need our support um, and be invested in their full experience uh, so that they can learn, earn, thrive uh, like anyone we'd want anywhere. Yeah. We're talking with uh, Abdul El-Sayed, uh, who is a former gubernatorial candidate and former executive director of the Detroit Health Department. He will be the new health director of Wayne County come March of 2023. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call and let us know about maybe the health concerns you have here in Wayne County. What are the things that government needs to be doing to keep people safe from illness and affection? But also uh, other things like pollution and environmental uh, issues that we have, uh, the, the imbalances that we see in our communities here in southeast Michigan. Uh, are you someone who lives in Wayne County? Uh, give us a call and let us know what your main health concerns look like. Uh, and if you have uh, specific questions for Dr. El Syed, uh, this is the time to call and ask. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. <clears throat> uh, before we get to our listeners, uh, Abdul, I, I want to talk about something that you have really been focused on a lot in, in recent years in, in a number of different roles. You're a very big advocate of single-payer health care and giving people 
universal resources they need to keep them healthy on the front end of health, right? Uh, preventative instead of reactive care. Uh, talk about from this new role uh, how that idea or those, that, those sets of ideas fit into the role. Uh, is there a way uh, to incorporate that belief into the, the things that you're going to do? You know, the fundamental frustration uh, I think all of us have with the way we think about health and healthcare in this country is that healthcare is a privilege. If you make enough money uh, or uh, you um, are employed, then you get the privilege of being able to see a doctor when you get sick. Now, of course, as I say that, that, that really should violate our deepest sense of justice. All of us uh, in the richest, most powerful country in the world. Uh, we're born with bodies. And if those bodies um, do not work the way uh, that they have been, if those bodies start to get ill, if they threaten our lives, we should be able to see someone who can take care of us no matter what our economic circumstances are. And part of the goal of single payer is articulating a future where the government recognizes that the responsibility to provide the human rights of health care uh, sits with that collective institution that all of us have a stake in. Every time you and I go and cast a ballot in, in, in the odd or even years, what we're doing is we're taking and we're cashing out our stake in our democracy, in our government, so that it serves us in the ways that it's supposed to, right? Um, our, we, we live in a state, but, but uh, in, in other communities, they call it a commonwealth. Um, and that's what government was supposed to be. And it is, this is one of those principal responsibilities that government ought to have. Now, the amazing thing about Wayne County is that part of uh, the services that we provide is we provide a health insurance program uh, that we offer to businesses. And one of the amazing things about uh, County Executive Evans's vision is the recognition that in Wayne County, we have an opportunity to think innovatively about what we can do with that program to be uh, trying to take on that responsibility of offering uh, more insurance, more security when it comes to health for more people. Um, and look, we're not the federal government. We're not even the state government. We're a county. And so uh, access to the same kinds of resources that a federal government has or even a state government has, we don't have that. But of what we have, how do we leverage that in some interesting and unique ways? So one example is one of the hardest things about our current health insurance system is that if, if you want to start a small business and you work for a large corporation, you're tethered to that corporation to provide you and your family access to insurance. And so you got this cool idea and you love to go to go start it, but you really can't. What if it's a huge risk? It's a huge risk. And if it if it fails now, it's not just that you've lost your money and your time. It's it's that if somebody gets sick in your in your family, they, they don't have access to health care. So what if um, we could think innovatively about about creating a sort of uh, program where we de-risk new entrepreneurs in Wayne County who want to go and start that small business by saying, hey, we're going to extend you health care for you and your family, right? So these are the kinds of ideas that the, the county executive um, really sees and the opportunity to sort of go big and demonstrate what we in a county like Wayne, a diverse, big county, but a county that recognizes its responsibility to the communities that it serves, what if we think innovatively about doing things like that? And then once you start expanding those kinds of programs, you can think innovatively about what you can do. Now, this is a program, there's a lot of investment that has to go into thinking about it and making sure the numbers work out. But that's the kind of vision that the county executive uh, is excited about. And I think those are the kinds of opportunities that even a county like Wayne, who just eight years ago, before the county executive's uh, leadership, uh, was in its own financial um, tough financial circumstances, that's where we are now where we can start thinking, well, how do we invest in the kind of small business economy simply by underwriting a new entrepreneur's health insurance? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Abdul El Syed, who will be the new health director of the Wayne County Health Department come March 2023. We'll also get going on the phones and on social with listeners. Mike in Northwest Detroit, John in East Detroit, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Hey 
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking with Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, who used to be the health director in the city of Detroit. is now going to be the health director in Wayne County. Also ran for governor in 2018. One of the more progressive candidates uh, who challenged uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer before she was the governor. Uh, we're talking about uh, health outcomes in Wayne County, uh, the areas of challenge and need and concern, and uh, what Dr. El Sayed is going to do when he is in charge of our health department. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know about health concerns you have here in uh, Wayne County, not just uh, things about the pandemic or public health, but also uh, things about the environment and pollution, uh, the kinds of inequities we see in Wayne County. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll include you in the conversation. Let's start today with Mike in Northwest Detroit. Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, you guys. Good morning. Hey. Uh, first, I wanted to say Alf Mabruk to Dr. Al-Sayed for taking on this new role. We're all out here like so excited to see, um, you know, somebody from progressive activism stepping into a position like this. And um, I was really interested. So my first born son was just born on Tuesday. And wow, congratulations. my wife and I, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, my wife and I have been obsessing during her whole pregnancy about the lead in our home that our home was built in 1928. It's gorgeous. We love this house. But, you know, our windows are the original windows. We mm. have a lead service line. And we went through, you know, everything that a new parent goes through, you know, nurturing my wife's body and like, you know, making sure she's getting everything she needs. And the last thing that we want to do is bring this child into this world and poison them with the dust that's going to generate it in our home or just through the water. And mm. I know that a lot of this stuff is managed on a city-by-city basis, but I would really love to hear do- uh, the doctor's thoughts on um, how we can, like, work together as a county, like if we put all of our resources together. And, like, it's just so frustrating that, you know, here we are still, and we're getting poisoned by our homes. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, Mike, again, congratulations. I mean, that's such a big uh, moment in, in your life and your wife's and, of course, uh, uh, your new son. And and I can absolutely hear in your voice, though, uh, the anxiety about this. And and that seems so terribly unfair to, to compromise or to have to compromise this this wonderful celebratory moment in your life with – concerns about things that uh, that we shouldn't still be uh, be dealing with. Uh, Dr. El-Sayed, I wonder what your reaction is to what Mike's talking about and whether there is opportunity for the county and the city to be working together on these things. Mike, first of all, uh, mabruk to you on uh, the, the new change in your lives. And um, we, uh, we're wishing you uh, a really uh, joyful first several months um, with, with your newborn uh, what Mike is speaking to is the fact that um, before 1978, uh, the, the majority of homes that were built were painted with lead-based paint. And that wasn't banned until 78. And since, um, obviously, there, there, there's no lead used in paint, but it stays residual uh, under the several coats of paint um, that one will have painted over the years. Um, and, and, and Mike's home, as he said, was built in, in 1928. Um, charming architecture, but, uh, but unfortunately, you have this situation with the lead. And one of the um, most important things that we can do uh, is protect our children um, from uh, a a heavy metal that we know competes with calcium in their brains and in their bones uh, and can poison them over the long term. And unfortunately, in too many communities uh, across our state, particularly uh, in Detroit and and communities in Wayne County, you have this awful circumstance where paint starts to chip off walls. Uh, Children actually are attracted to eating paint chips because they're sweet. Um, uh, It's it's thought that uh, in Rome, um, they used to sweeten their uh, wine with lead. With lead. Um, and there's <laughs> some theories about how it, it brought about the end of Rome. Uh, but, um, but this is something that we have yet to fully protect our children from. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, lead is a, a housing problem. And there is an investment that we all ought to be making at the state and the federal level 
uh, to guarantee that we are taking the lead out of homes. And that, that is a policy choice that we have yet to make. Uh, I do look forward to working with colleagues in the city of Detroit and colleagues at the state of Michigan to be thinking about what are the kinds of policies that we need to invest in um, to get this right. And, and it's actually work that I uh, had the privilege of engaging in, uh, unfortunately, after the, the Flint water crisis. But there's a lot more that we need to do, and it needs to be a policy choice that we fully and 100% uh, mitigate, ide- ideally remove um, the lead from homes uh, as their uh, transition between hands, uh, and that we are protecting our, our most vulnerable, our smallest, um, from the consequences uh, of, of, of this contaminant. Uh, are we making progress on particularly lead abatement in the city of Detroit? And, and of course, that has to do with not just uh, homes and the demolition of homes and the, the old paint that's in them, but the, the lead lines that, uh, that, of course, carried water to our homes for such a long time. Uh, I haven't heard much about where we are with that. So there has been a lot of progress made, and I, I just want to um, call out the, the fact that uh, you know there has been a full 100% investment in removing lead service lines. Of course, that work is going to take some time, but um, under the Bipartisan uh, Infrastructure uh, uh, Act that, um, that was passed uh, under President Biden's leadership, um, there is funding to remove those lead services line, service lines across the country. And so that's a big step. But when it comes to lead abatement, um, this, this really, you know, there, there has been some work done um, in the form of, uh, in, in, in Detroit's case, uh, a, uh, a city ordinance um, around requiring uh, abatement in in rented properties, um, but there's just still a lot more to do when it comes to uh, owned properties uh, and removing lead there, and that becomes a much cha- more challenging problem simply because um, you're you're talking about non-commercial properties, and there's very little that a government can tell people to do in their own property. And at the same time, I think the opportunity exists where properties are transitioned. If a property is going to be sold from one owner to another, there is an opportunity to require that that property is fully abated of lead so that over time what we are doing is making up for the, um, the, the failures of our history to ban lead-based paint uh, much earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Mike, uh, congratulations and uh, really appreciate the call and the important uh, questions. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, social media here next. Corey on Twitter says, we need to work on clean air, clean water, dealing with the trash mountains and rebuilding trust in health institutions with regard to vaccinations. That, that last point he's making is a really interesting one. This idea that, uh, that there is skepticism, I suppose, uh, or doubt about vaccinations, their safety, and, and all of the things that, uh, that we think about when we think about vaccinations after the pandemic, where, I mean, you know, from, from where I sit, the, the vaccinations were, were the thing that got us through and got us over the hump. But there are a lot of people who worried still, I think, are worried still about, about the way all of that works and the institutions that are involved. You're absolutely right, right Stephen, and it is, um, it, it's so heartbreaking. Um, uh, listeners may know I host a podcast called America Dissected, and the very first episode we did in the fall of 2019 was about the anti-vaxxer movement. Now, this was before the COVID pandemic and all of the myths and disinformation uh, that abounded in that time. And I actually interviewed my grandparents, um, who were some of the first to be vaccinated for the polio vaccine. And I asked them, you know, what what was going through your mind and your parents' mind? And both of them just said, there was no way that we were not going to be vaccinated for polio. Our parents waited for hours with us in a line. And if anybody has young children, you know, waiting for hours in a line with a young kid uh, is not the easiest thing to do. Um, But their point was that every single one of us knew a child whose life was fundamentally altered because of this disease. And we saw it up front and there was no way that if there was an opportunity to prevent that, that our parents weren't going to take it. And I think part of the challenge now is that vaccines have become a victim of their own success. We don't regularly see polio. We don't regularly see measles or mumps or rubella. And the reason why is because there have been mass vaccination campaigns for safe and effective vaccines that have nearly eradicated these. But what is sad now is that the mis and disinformation, you know, the virality uh, of wrong information on social media Um, has shaken trust in medical institutions in a moment when the pandemic um, forced science and scientists 
uh, and doctors and, and healthcare institutions to contend in a period where we did not have all the knowledge that we would have wanted to have all the time. And so what we were trying to do was make public policy on the fly with as best information as we could. And there were mistakes made. There was no doubt. Of course, there were going to be mistakes made. But they actually didn't have to do with the vaccine. This vaccine, these vaccines have been safe and effective mm -hmm. and have saved millions of lives worldwide. And what I worry about, right, is that the mis and disinformation that has been allowed to fester along uh, with this pandemic and the effort to vaccinate people against COVID has now undermined trust in other vaccines that we have routinely taken since we were children. And what we're starting to see is lower uh, vaccination rates uh, across the country. There is one point I do want to make is that for a, a lot of communities of color, particularly black communities, there is a history and not just a history, but a present of, of, of feeling discriminated against in institutions yeah. uh, of health. Right, whether it was hearing about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, where uh, the predecessor to the CDC allowed uh, 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 many young men and their family to go untreated for syphilis, despite the fact that we had a treatment for it, or it's the fact that uh, routinely Black Americans will walk into a healthcare institution and be treated in a different and lesser way, told that their bodies and their pain don't matter uh, today, and this is in 2022. And so there is a lot that the House of Medicine, the House of Science needs to uh, atone for and get right when it comes to, to equity and it comes to trust uh, for communities ha that have been routinely marginalized uh, by these institutions. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the, the, the most of the mis and disinformation that is being peddled is being peddled with a political agenda around it um, that is less focused on the honest health and welfare of people and more focused on whether or not we can continue to tear down trust in institutions um, that for the most part are trying to do their best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th I see a lot of people seizing on things that happened during the pandemic as a way of saying, you know, look, government doesn't know what it's doing. The government overreaches. Government uh, is irresponsible. And I, I keep saying, you know, first of all, this was a pandemic. It was unprecedented, the things that we were facing, the choices that needed to be made. Everybody was was reacting in real time to all of these things. People did the best that they could, made the best decisions that they could. Uh, the, the, the number of people who did die was was tragic. But, I mean, I always say, listen, if, if we hadn't done the things that we did uh, and as quickly as, as we did in some cases – many, many more people would have died. And it's not a failure of government that the things they did didn't immediately solve all of the problems. Uh, it's a triumph of government that uh, they were able to do it and that eventually we got through. But that's a hard sell uh, to a lot of folks. I, I just want to add, um, just as a, as a once in future health director, um, we are facing what uh, a lot of experts are calling a triple-demic right now. And um, the uh, caseload of COVID-19 is up about 30% over the past two weeks. Hospitalizations for the flu are up uh, in the 70% uh, week on week. Um, and we've seen RSV just fundamentally pack our pediatric hospitals, attacking our most vulnerable people. The first two, COVID and flu, have safe, effective vaccines. And, you know, in the past, uh, over the past two years, particularly during the Omicron surge right around this time last year, the majority of people who died uh, of COVID were unvaccinated. The challenge now is that a lot of folks have taken their first two vaccines, particularly older folks, and said, you know, that's it. I've done, I've done what I needed to do. Unfortunately, this virus um, is shifty and it shifts. And so you need to keep up with your vaccines. If you have not gotten uh, your updated vaccine, please do so now. Do it for you. Do it for your loved ones. Do it for your family. Uh, and do it for the healthcare system that has taken a battering um, because you don't want to be the one who ends up in a hospital. You don't want to be the one who gives it to your grandma and she ends up in the hospital. Um, so please do what you can uh, to make sure you get vaccinated. Yeah. I mean, uh, get vaccinated. And look, I walked into the studio today and one of our producers said to me, look, lots of people are sick right now. You should put on a mask. That's so right. what did I do? I put on a mask that's not a, a, a sign of weakness or or a lack of independence. That's respect for the people that I work with and the people, of course, that I live with who I could, uh, you know, take something home to from here if I didn't do that. These are very simple measures that uh, that we can all be doing and taking 
to make sure that we don't get back into the situation we were in in 2020 or in uh, in 2021. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Dr. Abdul El Syed about his new role with Wayne County. We're also going to talk a little politics with him. We can't have him here and not talk politics. Uh, we'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. As always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Dr. Abdul El Syed, former health director here in the city of Detroit, is going to be the new health director in Wayne County. We're talking about the challenges he will face uh, in that role, the things that uh, we need addressing here in Wayne County and the many, many communities that make up Wayne County. also want to hear from you, of course. Uh, are there things that are on your mind that uh, amount to health challenges that we have here in Wayne County, things that you think we ought to be focused on? Uh, also, if you just have questions for uh, Dr. El Syed, uh, this is the time to ask them. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to go back to social media here. Nick Schreck, who uh, is a frequent guest here on the show, uh, one of the most important, I think, voices in the uh, environmental advocacy community here in Southeast Michigan. He has a question. He says, congratulations on the new commission, uh, new position. Uh, have you been tracking the proposed concrete and asphalt plants in the county and concerns from residents already living in these areas with high pollution? I have to say that this week uh, really turned my attention uh, to those stories. I, I didn't really know that uh, we were we were building those plants in those in those communities, but those are communities that already have a lot of challenges when it comes to the environment. There are also communities where we're starting to make really important investments to abate those issues. What about these new plants uh, and how should we be thinking of public health in the context of building them? Well, uh, first, I just want to say um, thank you to Nick for his uh, tireless advocacy um, and his his efforts to really build a, a safer, healthier Michigan. Uh, and I look forward to working with him on these issues and, and so many others. Um, one of the one of the things that we're starting to better understand is the impact of air pollution on our health over the long term. And you know, when you think about air pollution, it's um, the chemicals you breathe, but it's also the stuff you breathe. And we measure that in two different ways. One is called PM two point five, which is uh, particulate matter that is smaller than two point five microns. You can't see it uh, without a microscope. And then PM ten, which is particulate matter uh, that is smaller than ten microns. And when it comes to cement um, and, uh, and, 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 and rock quarry type activity, you know, if you've ever driven uh, behind a, um, a, a dump truck, right, and you see all those little rocks that come off, those rocks are the biggest particles. But then think about all of the other smaller and smaller particles that then get suspended in the air because they're so small. And then we breathe that over and over and over again. And if you live in a community or you go to school in a community, uh, where that is in your vicinity. Every time those piles get moved or, or dropped, um, you see that uh, those plumes come off and they don't just go away. It takes them a long time to settle and oftentimes they settle in our lungs. Now, when they get into our bodies, um, it's not just what they do to our lungs, which is bad enough. It's actually the fact that um, what happens is because of what they do to our lungs, our heart has to beat. You know, a heart beats, it's basically two pumps, one that pumps blood to your lungs and one that pumps blood to your body. And when it has to beat against higher pressure in your lungs, um, over time, uh, that leads to pretty severe heart disease. And so what we're starting to understand is that air pollution uh, will take 
uh, lives to the tunes of tens of thousands of lives a year that is attributable to this air pollution as you compare more polluted and less polluted communities. And so taking on air pollution has to be one of our biggest responsibilities. And as we think about uh, the contending impact of um, of, of the kind of industry uh, that gets built, we have to be also committed to mitigating the impact of that uh, on people's health. And, and there are ways to do it. Um, and you know, when I was at the city of Detroit, uh, we worked pretty hard to make sure that mitigation efforts were uh, were in place um, with respect to these kinds of industries. And uh, and I know that that is going to be an area uh, of focus for us uh, in Wayne County as well. well. We have a ton of industry along the riverfront still, especially the southwest uh, part of the riverfront and and i th- i feel like one of the things that we will be i think reckoning with in the next decade or so is how much of that we want to maintain do we want the riverfront to be industrial or do we want it to be public access parks or do we want it to be housing something we don't have a lot of along the riverfront and i feel like this this argument over the concrete plant and the asphalt plant is kind of at the forefront of that that's right um you know, the, the, the question of like what an economy looks like and, and who it's built for is something that we have been contending with uh, in uh, this community, in this state for a very long time. And, um, you know, I think uh, as you look at the, the degree to which small business and small business investment uh, enriches communities, um, I think it is quite profound. And uh, there are trade-offs between building a small business oriented and driven uh, community versus a big business oriented and driven community. And part of that is, is the consequence for public health. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Nick Shrek, uh, really appreciate uh, you contributing to uh, the conversation today. Let's go to the phones again. Linda in Detroit, you're up next. What's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Uh, sure. Doctor, uh, you know, I'm thinking a lot about the police involved shootings we've had in Detroit, especially for people who have mental illness and mental health issues. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we can ensure that we have like a really strong, robust mental health response that doesn't include the police at all. Is this something that can be worked on with police departments essentially to get them out of the mix, but to straight also strengthen what we are doing to help and support our community members who have mental illness? Yeah. Linda, great question. And I'll say before Dr. El-Sayed answers that we do a terrible job here in the state of Michigan uh, with with mental health support. We have for several decades. Uh, I think most people now recognize it, which is uh, some progress, but we certainly have not invested the resources or done the thinking to rebuild an infrastructure that that um, that addresses those needs uh, better. But But talk about how your role fits into into some of that. Yeah, I really appreciate the question, Linda. And, you know, in this country, um, we have not invested in mental health uh, in the way that we ought to. You know, we do this thing in this country where when it comes to healthcare, we basically decapitate the body. We treat everything that happens in the head, whether it's mental or dental or vision and hearing as if it's separate from the rest of the body, which we all know that the head is probably the most important part of the body. And um, and so it, it makes no sense for us to do this. Um, there has been a sea change in the way that we think about mental health support. One program, and I want to call out uh, the leadership of, of Senator Debbie Stabenow on this, um, has been the massive investment in comprehensive community behavioral health clinics. Uh, actually, ironically, um, through the uh, gun reform law that was passed uh, last year. Um, it is the single biggest investment in behavioral health, outpatient behavioral health, in the country, and it creates um, the kind of infrastructure that we can build off of to start thinking about alternative responses um, when people are uh, facing crisis. And unfortunately, right um, in, in this country, too often uh, the answer to any crisis situation has been the police, and that that is not um, the the most effective, most efficient. Even people in uh, in law enforcement would tell you that this is not what they want to be responding to. Um, and instead, what we need to be invested in is the kind of infrastructure um, that identifies mental health crisis, that uh, takes it on, um, and that uh, uh, creates a pathway um, for folks uh, with mental illness to be able uh, to live um, safely, secure, securely, 
uh, and um, in their own communities, just like all of us want. And you know, one of the, the challenges with this is that it also stigmatizes mental health and mental illness. And one of the, I think, long range consequences of the pandemic that we will all need to contend with is the consequence of the pandemic on mental health. And um, I think the stigma that has often come with the way that we engage um, with mental health and mental illness has kept a lot of people who are, you know, not, not, uh, not, don't have mental health or mental illness severe enough to cause crisis, um, but it's kept folks from getting the help that they need uh, to be their, their, their best, most well self. Um, and so I, I just think that there needs to be a sea change. I think that the uh, behavioral health clinic model is gonna be a part of that. Um, and I think it offers uh, communities like Wade County a great piece of infrastructure to build from to be able to take on some of these uh, most acute challenges. So I really appreciate the question, Linda. Yeah. And Gene in Detroit, you are next. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, Gene. Hello. Hey, go ahead. Yes, good morning. Uh, I'd like to wonder if uh, the doctor could comment on the uh, effects of RSV on adults. Uh, I noticed there are a lot more cases of uh, cold and flu-like symptoms that uh, aren't flu or COVID, but that cause lingering symptoms in uh, adults that last for days, sometimes weeks, and uh, they can be pretty debilitating. Uh, Could the doctor comment on that and perhaps give any uh, uh, ideas on how that could be treated. Great, great question, Gene. I mean, the the media reports uh, on RSV have made it seem like it is a children's disease, and it is affecting lots and lots of kids. But but adults are vulnerable too. Yeah, Gene, I really appreciate uh, the question. I myself have been dealing with um, this lingering uh, set of symptoms from an infection I got like three weeks ago. You might even hear it in my voice, um, and. Uh, this is the season where, because we go indoors, all of the viruses that tend to infect us hit us hardest um, because they're bouncing around between us because we're not outdoors and uh, we are sharing tight and closed spaces. This is a big reason why during COVID, uh, that one of the key um, suggestions was not to mingle in tight indoor spaces. Now, um, part of that, th- there's, there's a couple of things going on here. First, what we call the common cold is not one virus. It's a collection of different viruses, one of which is RSV. But when RSV hits children, because their piping, in effect, is so much smaller, it can be a life-threatening illness. For those of us who are adults whose piping is a bit bigger, um, it, it is a, 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 a bad cold. Um, but, but part of what has happened is because for the past several years, we've been taking extra precaution not to spread viruses amongst us, the virus has taken the opportunity to evolve and our immunity to a lot of these things have, have, have waned. And so whereas in the past an infection with an RSV uh, ha- would have given you a milder kind of cold, this may be the first time you're seeing it in a couple of years. It has changed and your immunity has waned and so it hits you a lot harder, which is partly why we're having just a nasty cold and flu season. Um, this is happening across the board uh, with flu as well and with all of the other viruses Uh, that cause the common cold. One of the most important things that we can do to protect ourselves is what what, uh, Stephen called out earlier, which is just basically wearing a mask. And what a mask does, especially a well-fitting N95 mask, is it blocks particles from getting into your respiratory system. If you wear it over your nose and your mouth, those are the only two inputs uh, into your respiratory system. If you wear it well, um, it just that those 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 viruses, um, those particles that cause the illness, just don't get into your respiratory system and protect you. But that does another thing too: is that it protects other people from you because when you cough or you sneeze, um, the mask also protects the outgoing particles. And so, one of the most important things that we can do is protect ourselves. If you are struggling with a cold or flu, uh, make sure you see your doctor, but also, you know, the basic things, make sure you're hydrated, make sure you're rested, make sure you're not overexerting yourself. Um, these are the things that, that we need to do, but it's the contagion of these things that really do cause mass havoc because for every kid that gets RSV, it's not like RSV is only spreading in kids. It's spreading between adults and kids. And so it may be that that nasty cold or flu that you got could infect a child and make them extremely ill. And so we've got to do what we can to stop that contagion. And that includes um, wearing masks, includes being careful, includes trying not to spread that virus uh, and making sure that you've gotten the health care that you need when you need it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, again, Gene, really, really great question. Uh, appreciate the uh, the call. Let's uh, go to Peter in Whitmore Lake. Peter, we've only got a couple minutes left, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Mm-hmm. You got me on the phone here? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Excellent. Um, I just had a question for Dr. Saeed and kind of in the state. Um, just wondering if now with the Democrats holding the state pretty much, if this might be an opportunity for the state to move to a single health payer system, um, how that might help people and how much that might save the state. And I was just curious about Dr. Saeed's thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, g- great question. Um, uh, can we do this on our own, even in part, can we uh, do this on our own? So, you know, when I, when I um, had run for office, I ran on a state-based single-payer system. Um, there's going to need to be the political will, um, and, you know, that is up to the, the legislators and, and the governor. I, I do believe that this is something, particularly with a Democratic administration in Washington, that's possible. There are really two big challenges to a state-based single-payer system. The first is this uh, very bureaucratic law called ERISA, um, which basically preempts states from um, changing uh, benefits law, the, the law that governs benefits that, that uh, employers can offer. Um, and uh, the, the, the state would need to get a waiver on ERISA. The second uh, is a waiver from CMS on how Medicaid and Medicare dollars are used. So technically, it's, it's really quite possible. But the, the real question is whether or not um, there is the political will. I'm really excited about the Democratic trifecta in Michigan. I think there's a lot of opportunity to move uh, on so much that has been going wrong, whether it's protection of our Great Lakes, whether it is um, repealing right to work, whether it's enshrining uh, basic civil liberties for communities that have not been included for a very long time. Um, and I know that um, that investing in better, uh, more comprehensive uh, and, and more secure health care has to be a part of that. Yeah. Okay, uh, Abdul El Sayed, always great to have you here. Congratulations on the new post, and we look forward to talking to you again after you are officially the health director here in Wayne County. Thanks for being here on oh, Detroit today. Always excited uh, to join you, Stephen. I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate the caller's questions. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with senior fellow Andy Smarek, who works with the conservative think tank. Manhattan Institute about what conservative ideals are, where the Republican Party is going, and what conservative policies look like. It is part of our look at conservatism as we get ready for 2023 and 2024. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.